Good morning, you guys. Hope you guys have had a great weekend. We're going to be Hebrews chapter 5 this morning, uh, verses 11 all the way to chapter 6, verse 8. So if you guys will turn, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 5. As you guys turn there, I just want to remind you guys, every Wednesday we do something we call campus lunch. And so every Wednesday our college staff is up on campus at the academic uh, plaza area, uh, hanging out, eating lunch, and playing a little serious Foursquare. So for the week intimidated it is not for you, but if you would like to challenge me in a little Foursquare, that's the time, that's the place. We'd love to have you guys there, all right? Wednesday is 11.45 to about 1 o'clock. We'd love to have you guys join us there. Hebrews chapter 5, uh, we're going to be in probably one of the most challenging passages uh, that we will ever probably hit uh, as a church and, and in, in the Word of God. And so uh, let's walk through it, and then I'll pray for the Lord's kindness and grace and mercy this morning. So Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 and on. Writer Hebrews tells us, concerning him, speaking of Melchizedek, verse 10, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, and you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who've once been enlightened and who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance." since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we give you great thanks for your word. Father, we give you thanks that you've not left us in darkness, that you have spoken. Not only have you spoken to create, but you've spoken to reveal and to allow us to know who you are. Uh, what you're like, how you've designed life, and what you've called us to. And Father, I pray this morning as we tackle uh, a really challenging passage, Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us as we walk through this time. pray that you'd illuminate our minds, that you'd give us understanding, that you'd give us clarity of thought. pray that you'd allow us just to uh, hang and be able to dive deeply into your word um, and to wrestle with it. Father, I pray that you'd give me, even as we walk through this, Lord, I pray that you'd give me your words, um, that you'd allow me to communicate as you see fit. Um, Father, I pray that you'd give me humility to step and communicate with confidence and yet also to communicate with uncertainty and the spots that you would have me to. Father, I pray that you would allow this message to be pleasing to you, Lord. I pray for us uh, as a group, Lord. I pray that you'd give us teachable hearts. I pray that you'd give us uh, minds able to wrestle this morning, able to think well, able to think hard. I pray that you'd give us hearts that are also responsive to you and uh, responsive in the midst of um, difficult things in life at times. And Father, I pray that as we just walk through this section, Lord, that you would allow it not to be academic, not to be theological in its essence. Lord, I pray that you'd land us in a really practical place this morning. And that Hebrews 6, as we walk through its difficulty, Lord, I pray that you'd allow it to be exceedingly practical to us, Lord. And Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Uh, it was fall semester my junior year. Cold weather. It was a, a Saturday, a, a cold weekend like we just had. Uh, it was a rainy game day uh, my fall semester junior year, and I chose a bit as a two percenter not to attend the game that day. My uh, three roommates, who were all, I thought at the time, knuckleheads, decided to go and to brave what was extremely cold weather 
and what was a torrential downpour, all right? It was a game that we won a lot like last night, but it was a game that they endured and set through and actually stood through about three hours of torrential pouring rain and incredibly cold, bitter weather, all right? I chose instead as the two percenter wise man that I was, I chose the comforts of my home to the uh, inclement weather conditions. I chose the comfort of my couch over three hours of standing to watch a game in horrible weather in which I was going to have to watch it squeeze between people and watching the entirety of the game over my shoulder. You know how it goes, right? Uh, when the stands are packed, right? You don't even get to watch straight on. You're watching like this the whole time. And I chose also the, the cheapness and the goodness of my drinks and my food in my fridge and in my pantry over the food at the concession stands of Kyle Field. I thought I was quite wise and quite mature. And my three, head, uh, three roommates that were knuckleheads took off in their foolishness and took off for the game. And I thought, to be perfectly honest with you guys, if they want to go to the game, that's their thing. And they can do it. But the bed they make is the bed that they're going to lie in. They're going to have to deal with the results of their decision, all right? And at the end of the game, these guys, these knuckleheads decided to call me up and ask me to come up on campus at the end of a game and come get them. Come rescue them out of those weather conditions. Now, I decided what any only child does. Heck no, all right? Uh, and so I decided to tell them, do you realize the foolishness of me coming up on campus as all this traffic and all this horrible weather is ensuing? There's no way I'm going to get to you guys. And even if I got to you guys, by the time we got back home, you guys would have been able to walk home faster. And so I said, heck no, and I hung up, all right? About two minutes later, another one of my roommates calls this guy, which was probably my best friend all through my childhood, the same guy that brought me to the Lord and also a guy who was a high school wrestler, all right, called me and very calmly decided to inform me yet again that it really would be wise if I would come up and get them. And as I launched back into my rant, at which point my uh, incredibly gracious friend and roommate decided at that point to cut me off mid-sentence and now not so calmly, not so quietly, uh, but very sternly said my name followed by two words. He said, Trey, be careful. Now, sometimes it's not what you say, but it's who says it and, in a sense, how you say it, all right? Uh, Scott's two simple words after my name got me in my car and and basically made me do a 180 in my attitude and a 180 in my trajectory and my path, all right? Uh, Scott was and still is one of the most loyal friends I have in my life. Uh, His patience, his kindness knows no ends, except eventually it does know an end, all right? And when you've pushed Scott too far, a line gets drawn, and if you cross that line, it is a point of no return, okay? Uh, I I found that out often through high school because we would often be playing basketball, and I was better than him. I was quicker. I was agile. I uh, I could play ball, and so I'd often be dominating on him in the basketball court, and then eventually I'd begin to trash talk, and eventually his patience and his kindness would know an end, and before I knew it, we were in our side yard, and he was showing and teaching me some new uh, wrestling movie experience and he just learned in high school as I found that my legs could bend in ways I had never imagined before, all right? Uh, Scott was an incredibly loyal and gracious and patient friend, but eventually a line would be drawn in which he would not allow one's maturity and one's selfishness to continue further, all right? And, and as you hit that point, if eventually you crossed it, it was a point in time when you would face the consequences and sometimes there was no point of return. There was no opportunity to turn back. And really what we're going to look at in what is a really challenging passage this morning is, is it going to be in a really similar way. Hebrews 6 is, in a sense, the third warning of the book of Hebrews. And as these warnings come throughout the book of Hebrews, they're going to mount in, uh, in severity, they're going to mount in intensity, and they're going to mount in consequence. And Hebrews 6 is going to come incredibly difficult, incredibly hard to swallow this morning. Because it's what it's going to do for us, I think, is it's going to draw a line in the sand, and we're going to see that if you and I continue to press on at times in sin and in lack of faith, that if we go far enough into that and we go long enough into that, we may at some point cross a line 
getting drawn in the sand in which we don't have an opportunity to return and to change our path. In many regards, that's a message, that's an idea that is something we rarely hear about and we rarely talk about. In fact, I'm going to land us in a sense in a spot this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 6 that's going to be really, really hard to swallow. And yet I'm going to argue that I'm going to land us somewhere interpretively in a spot that's not the norm of what you typically and how you would typically hear this passage taught. And in fact, I'd argue the way that this passage is typically taught lands you in a place that's even more hard to swallow and even scarier. So I'm going to try to walk through this passage, give you guys some options on how it's typically understood and how it's typically taught. And then we're going to kind of jump in it and try to explain it. All right. So Hebrews chapter 6. Here we go, all right? Essentially, there's a problem going on. And in a sense, as we look at chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, we're going to see the nature of that problem. Uh, And the symptoms of that problem are the first things that get presented in verses 11 and 12. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Verse 10, he was talking about Jesus' priesthood, as we looked at last week. And as he came to the end of chapter 4, verse 10, he talked about, introduced his character, Melchizedek, and then he hits the brakes. And he's going to kind of launch off on a little bit of an aside here because his audience isn't ready to hear about Melchizedek. Uh, nor are you and I, because we can't even say his name half the time, all right? Uh, but notice what he says, verse 11. Concerning Melchizedek, we have much to tell you. And yet it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The writer of Hebrews wants to go on to discuss the nature and the person of Melchizedek, but he realizes his audience isn't ready to hear about Melchizedek. And so he hits the brakes and he steps off onto an aside. And he says, ultimately, the first symptom of their condition is that they're dull in hearing. They're not hearing very well. And ultimately, their hearing problem is not because of old age. They're not a grandpa in their faith that it's now lost their hearing and lost their ability to hear the word of God. What he's saying is that it's an issue that's even deeper. Notice verse 12. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. Then he says, hey, you don't hear very well anymore. (laughs) In fact, you're not hearing very well because you can't handle deep things In fact, where you should be, you ought to be those who are teaching the very deep things of the word of God. But not only are you not teaching them, you can't even hear them because something's wrong with you. You don't hear well. And in fact, in a sense, you've regressed in your maturity, he's going to say in verses 13 and 14. They ought to be teachers, but something's happened and they can't be teaching right now. In fact, they've got to return back to the elementary basic building blocks of Christianity and the truth of the word of God. He says in verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. (laughs) imagine if you were the audience here the writer is saying hey you can't even hear you you're not even ready for the deep things of chemistry or philosophy because you're 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 a wee lad (laughs) you're you're not really ready for the deep things and so i got to back the train back up a little bit and start back on the building blocks with you because you're but a spiritual infant and he's going to say in verse 14 but solid food is for the mature that they're not therefore they're not ready for the solid food but they need the milk they need the basics they need that which is a liquid diet Basically, as we kind of look in verses 11 to 14, the writer of Hebrews, and this is critical as we get in chapter 6, uh, 11 and 14 kind of set the stage and provide us a context for the discussion in chapter 6 that's really difficult. And the context is setting us up to understand that the problem going on for this audience was that they were those that were immature. They, they had ought to have, uh, by this time, developed into maturity and, and become teachers, but they weren't leading, they weren't teaching, they weren't serving, but they had regressed back into spiritual infancy. And the question is why? Why were they spiritual infants, so to speak? If the diagnosis was one of immaturity, the question is, why were they immature? What does spiritual immaturity tell you and I? In fact, theologically speaking, and if you look at and listen to podcasters and you read a lot of material these days, the question of spiritual immaturity, the question of those who have been in the church for a long time but haven't matured is a huge discussion. 
Why are those that have been in the church for a long time, been hearing the truth of God for a long time, but have yet and failed to grow? What is their situation? Why has that occurred? As we look at chapter six, we're going to see, I think, the reason for their immaturity. In fact, I'm going to give you guys, in a sense, three different viewpoints again that we've been looking at throughout the book of Hebrews, but I'm going to bring them back up again because it really leads into our discussion about chapter six. Why does spiritual immaturity exist for this audience? Why does spiritual immaturity exist for any audience that ought to have progressed and matured but hasn't yet? Why have people at times, and how do you explain the regression of people in their spiritual lives? Some would argue the Arminian position that that people are spiritually immature because they once had faith, but now they don't. That their sin, their lack of faith, their lack of trust has caused them to lose their salvation. They had at one point trusted Jesus Christ and he'd forgiven them of their sins, but in their sin and in their rejection and, and their walking away from Jesus, they've lost that salvation. As we look through the scriptures, I think it's really easy to, to dismiss that viewpoint. That's not a biblical viewpoint. That doesn't actually, I think, bring together and, and collect the evidence of the scriptures as to what and how God moves in our lives. That once we've trusted in Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection, you and I are given eternal life, we're given the forgiveness of our sins, and no matter what we do, we cannot lose that because we are not the ones who hold it. It is God himself who holds us and who preserves us all the way to glorification, all the way to heaven. So I don't think the Arminian position is one that's accurate. You and I cannot lose our salvation. The reason for spiritual immaturity in this audience is not because they've lost their salvation. Probably the dominant viewpoint and the dominant interpretation and a lot of the people you may listen to and a lot of the books you may read comes from a reformed or Calvinistic viewpoint. And they would argue this. As you look at Hebrews chapter six, as you look at this audience, the reason they've, they've not matured in their spiritual life is because not that they've lost their salvation, but they've never had it. Uh, the reformed of the Calvinistic viewpoint as they walk through Hebrews 6 will argue that, that these people have not matured because they never actually had salvation. In a sense, they are spiritual posers, all right? Uh, they are living within the community, but they actually don't have genuine faith. And because of that, that's why they're not growing. I'm going to argue something different this morning, okay? Uh, as we look at kind of what I'm going to put as our GBC viewpoint, our, our tradition, our theological uh, perspective, I would argue that that's not the best explanation for Hebrews 6, at least in this audience in particular. I'm going to argue that they have a genuine faith, but it's a faith that's stunted for different reasons. There's all kinds of reasons why you and I at times don't mature in our faith. There's all kinds of reasons why a genuine faith may not be progressing and may not be maturing. And we'll be talking about that as we walk through this morning. But ultimately, the writer of Hebrews comes across an audience who is, in a sense, struggling and maybe has even regressed spiritually. And the question is, why? Why have they regressed spiritually? And what you're going to really see that's interesting here in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, you're going to see not just the problem, but you're going to see the author's prescription to the problem. If the disease is spiritual immaturity, how do you treat it? You treat it based on why you think it exists. I'm going to argue that the prescription the writer of Hebrews gives to you and I in verses 1 and 2 for spiritual immaturity argues actually for the fact that these people have a genuine faith. You don't give the prescription in verses 1 and 2 to an audience who is, doesn't actually have genuine faith and who is posing in their faith, okay? Let me show you guys what I mean. Verses 1 and 2, notice the prescription. He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. What is his prescription here? Their disease is one of spiritual immaturity. And so how does he want to treat it? What's his prescription? His prescription is pretty simple. He says, I want you guys to press on to maturity. <laughs> Notice verse one, he says, let us press on to maturity. All right, that's what he wants them to do. He says, hey, you guys ought to be teachers, but you're not. 
And what I want us to do now, verse one, is I want us to press on to maturity. But notice in particular the steps towards maturity. Notice what he says. He says, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to leave the elementary teaching about Jesus Christ. And we're, gonna lay, uh, we're not going to again lay a foundation in talking about repentance from dead works and of faith. He says, hey, the basics of Christianity 101. We're going to leave these behind. We're not going to revisit these again. Why is that significant? If someone has not matured because they've lost their faith, as in the Arminian viewpoint, then you don't tell them to mature their faith because they lost it, right? If someone's posing spiritually, meaning they've been living within the church their whole life, but they've not been progressing spiritually because they don't have real faith, you don't tell them, hey, mature in your faith, right? (laughs) You don't have real faith, but I want you to grow it. Good luck with that, right? If they've lost their faith or if they don't have real faith, what do you do? You go back to the basic building blocks and confirm and talk again about the very basic nature of Jesus Christ, his identity, his activity, and what he's accomplished for you and I. What do you do for an audience that's posing? What you do is you go back to the very basics and the truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very things that he says we're not talking about anymore. He says, hey, we're not going to talk about the elementary teachings about Jesus Christ. We're not going to again lay a foundation about dead works that you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot do enough good things to please God. He says, hey, we're not going to talk about that again. You already got that down. We don't need to revisit it. He says, hey, we're not going to talk anymore about the resurrection or about eternal judgment. The fact that the wages of our sin is death, that you and I have earned hell, but Jesus Christ in his death, for those of us who've trusted in him, get something different. We get grace. We get what we cannot merit, what we cannot deserve. And he says, hey, we're not going to revisit those things. If someone's posing and they don't have a genuine faith, you've got to visit those things. You've got to talk with someone about the very basics of Christianity. If you're here this morning and you've been coming all semester and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, that's why we talk about the basics and the starting point for Christianity every single Sunday morning. There's no point to talk to you about relationships with the opposite sex. There's no point in talking to you about rewards and about living the righteous life and godly life if you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ because he's done for you what you cannot do. We talked all about that last week, that Jesus Christ is our high priest. He mediates in between us and God because he's gone where we cannot go and he's done what we cannot do. And he died the death that was meant to be ours so that we could get what we don't deserve. He died in our place and he took the penalty of our sins so that we could be forgiven and not considered guilty anymore. That's the foundation spot. And if you're here this morning and you've been living with a bunch of Christian people and you've been coming to church every Sunday, but you've never trusted in that message, that is the beginning point. (laughs) And in a sense, you're here and you're trying to live like Christians, but you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. You're never going to be able to pull it off. And the reason why is because you've never yet trusted in Jesus Christ. And that's why we talk about the basics of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ every single Sunday morning, because that's the starting spot. But if someone has genuine faith, you don't have to continue to talk about that. You don't have to continue to visit it. And so the writer of Hebrews presses them onto maturity and wants to leave aside these elementary teachings. His prescription is for an audience that he's absolutely confident that they believe in Jesus Christ, which is why he doesn't talk about the basics. He presses on, he wants to move on. The third thing I want you guys to see this morning is who are the people that he's talking about? Not just the problem of spiritual immaturity that's going to be prescribed and fixed and resolved by them pressing on to maturity, which is going to occur by leaving the elementary teachings of Christ behind. What he's going to do for them is, is I think, lock in and give you an even clearer sense of who he's talking about. If you're going to prescribe medicine as a doctor, you sure as heck better know the condition, the nature, the history of your patient. If you prescribe the wrong kind of medicine with the wrong kind of side effects to a person who is vulnerable to certain serious conditions, it's really, really serious and really, really dangerous. 
I'd argue that if we're not absolutely clear on, on who the writer of Hebrews is talking to, you and I can prescribe a medicine for someone that can actually lead to a very dangerous result. For those that think the audience in Hebrews is posing, the result is really, really dangerous in the way that they interpret Hebrews 6. I think the writer of Hebrews is absolutely confident of who he's writing to. Our confidence in the audience is not just true in medicine, it's also true in marketing. Uh, just to give you guys a little example, one of my favorite moments while I was going through seminary, my wife Marcy was working at Interstate Batteries and she was doing marketing for Interstate Batteries. And if you know anything about Interstate Batteries, they're into NASCAR, right? They have a NASCAR car. It's kind of a double car comment. It's kind of weird. Uh, they have a rider. They have all kinds of uh, paraphernalia, right? NASCAR is huge. And so much of her marketing was appealing to those who are into NASCAR, right? And so she one time sent me an email with a picture just to give me a little glimpse into the kinds of people that she was trying to reach, all right? Here was the picture. All right, here's a guy watching a NASCAR race, and he's so into NASCAR that he's shaved into his hairy back uh, the number of his favorite driver, all right? I don't know if you can tell that. It's a three written in. I think it was for the late deceased Dale Earnhardt at the time, all right? Uh, uh, there is a unique audience for NASCAR, all right? And so to market for that audience, you've got to go about it in some unique ways. Knowing your audience is huge for marketing, it's huge for medicine, but it's also huge for Bible. It's huge for biblical interpretation. And I know I completely, totally lost some of y'all this morning, all right? <laughs> Uh, let's kind of come back, Hebrews 6, okay? Uh, so knowing the audience is crucial for this whole interpretation, the whole understanding of Hebrews 6. Who is the writer of Hebrews writing to? Are they posers or are they people who have a real but maybe a stunted faith? Is there a faith one that's ingenuine as a poser or is it a real faith? What does he say about his audience? Chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Writer, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, at least the writer is absolutely clear who he's writing to. I'll give you guys another example. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. He says this, speaking of his audience. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings by being made a public spectacle and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Notice he says, after being enlightened. We'll kind of come back to that in a minute. I think enlightened there refers to the day that they understood the gospel truth and responded to it and were converted and, into, and entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. After that, they've endured a great flood of trials and, and persecutions. They'll say here that they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Their faith in Jesus, their identification with Jesus was costing them incredible things. Their property was being taken. They were suffering persecution. They were being shamed. The writer of Hebrews will say that they've not yet come to the place of shedding blood. The point being that soon enough, their very physical lives and physical bodies are going to be at stake and at jeopardy. And the idea being that these were people who had a real faith, but the pressures of their culture were causing it to be stunted. They were having a hard time moving on and maturing because the pressures that they were under were immense. You and I get this because in a conversation with a classmate, with a coworker, with a roommate, or with a family member, when the nature or the discussion and the person of Jesus Christ comes up, you and I at times have a tendency to recoil, right? We don't want to offend someone. So let's not talk about Jesus Christ. Let's, let's, let's not uh, create an awkward relational moment by having to talk about the truths of the gospel, that you and I are sinners, and that apart from Jesus Christ, we're separate from God. That whole discussion for a lot of us in relational evangelism brings awkwardness, brings fear. And so what do we do at times? We recoil. If you and I recoil because of a little bit of relational awkwardness, would you and I possibly recoil if our very lives and our blood was being shed for our faith in Jesus Christ? I think it's possible. <laughs> Under that kind of cultural pressure, under that kind of heat, the question is, would you and I get out of the kitchen or would you and I stay around? I think it's likely that some of us might bail. 
it's likely that some of us might not stick around because the heat's getting a little too hot and we're gone. The question is, why would you and I want to stick around? In fact, as you're going to look at in verses four to six, I think he's going to give that exact scenario for his audience. Notice what he says about them. I think he's going to describe his audience in verses four to six. He says this, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. I'm going to stop there. Verses four and five. He gives four different descriptions of some people. I think that people that he's describing in his audience, and I think his descriptions, I'm going to argue, are those of a genuine believer. In fact, I don't know how else you would describe a genuine believer than the ways that he describes them. All right. Four different uh, uh, characteristics here. There are those who have been enlightened. Same word he uses in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. I, I think enlightened there describes that, that they've understood truth, that their minds have been enlightened, opened. They've been able to see truth and they've responded to it. In fact, that same word gets used not just here, also Hebrews 10, but also in second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, but he gets used speaking in, in, in the activity of Satan himself. He says, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that God has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light or the enlightenment of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that to be enlightened means to see the truth and to respond to it, I'd argue. And so that, to me, that's a description that they are genuine believers. And he goes further and he says, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. What does it mean that they've tasted of the heavenly gift? Tasted there is the same word he's going to use in chapter 2, verse 9, to describe that Jesus has tasted of death for everyone, all right? When he says that they tasted just like Jesus tasted, it's not a simple little taste test. It's not like you're walking down the grocery store on a Sunday and they have all kinds of snacks and you take a little sample. Not enough to fill you, but just enough for a little taste. That's not the way that the word is being used in Hebrews 2 or in Hebrews 6. To taste here is to swallow whole. They've swallowed whole the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? I'd argue it's probably the calling of God. It's probably election. It's probably the uh, uh, forgiveness of sins. And so they've not just been enlightened and converted to the truth of God, but they've tasted of God's election and they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers there describes uh, one's experience with one's participation, even one's partnership with the Holy Spirit. Again, a great description for someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ. They've been enlightened. They've tasted of God's truth, God's calling, and they've also uh, been made partakers. They've experienced and have the indwelling spirit within them. Then he gives another description, verse five, they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've swallowed whole the truth of God and they've even seen the power of God in working as a glimpse now of what's to come. I I think it's, it's difficult to take these four descriptions and not see them as describing a genuine believer. It's going to be the next set of descriptions that come that are going to cause many, especially of a reformed bent, to argue that these aren't genuine believers, all right? And because the language gets really difficult. Notice what he says next. These people who have had this kind of experience and have tasted all of these things and participated in all of this, notice what they do next. Verse 6, and then they have fallen away. He's going to say then that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And we'll come and talk about that here in a minute. But notice his description. They've fallen away. Why? Since they again crucified to themselves the son of God and they put him to open shame. What is it that they've done? All right. These are people who have been described in a sense by five characteristics. The first four that we looked at, the fifth is that they've fallen away. They've fallen away. What does it mean that they've fallen away? I think particularly historically in the context, he gives us a description. What does it mean that they've fallen away? It means that they've crucified again to themselves the Son of God and they've put him to open shame. I think what it's a description of historically speaking is those people who are part of this community, but when the heat got really hot and the pressure got even more intense, they finally said, hey, I'm out. If, if I can just recount my faith in Jesus, if I can just dissociate from myself from Jesus, then I don't have to face these consequences anymore. And they say, you know what? I'm out. 
I'm done. (laughs) The heat is too much. The cost is too high. I'd rather not continue to associate with Jesus. And so they reject him and they fall away. Question is, can a genuine believer do that? That's where reformed theology and and our uh, viewpoint is going to diverge. And that I think as you look through the biblical record, so to speak, you're going to see all kinds of examples of genuine believers who go really far in rejection of Jesus and really far in immorality. I'm going to argue this morning that uh, genuine believers can go wild. Genuine believers can sin even to the end of their life. Genuine believers can end their lives extremely horribly. All right. Let me give you guys a few examples. Old Testament. You guys know Solomon. How does Solomon, uh, how is he portrayed in the Old Testament? He's the wisest of all men. How does he end his life? (laughs) He doesn't end it very well. All right. He multiplies idols. Okay. He has idols all over the place. He's got wives all over the place. He's got horses and chariots and allegiances with nations all over the place because he doesn't worship God. He doesn't trust God and he doesn't obey God. He ends his life as remarkably horribly as possible. You and I are going to see him in heaven. Do you believe that a Junon believer can do that? Because if you do, you expect to see Solomon in heaven. If you don't, you don't expect to see Solomon in heaven. Another example, but far less severe is Moses. I'd argue that in Hebrews chapter three and chapter four, as we already walked through what the writer of Hebrews is saying about Moses is that he does not end his life in the fulfillment of all that God planned and purposed for him. He fails short as a leader of the nation and the nation that's under his leadership falls way short. And so they don't get to enter into the promised land. Moses falls short in his own lifetime of what God wanted to do in his life. He falls short in lack of faith. He falls short and the nation itself also does as well. In fact, it's not just the Old Testament. I'd argue it's even the New Testament. I give you guys an example. First Corinthians chapter three, verses 10 and 15 describe a man who's lived his life and the entirety of his life is put on an altar of evaluation. And here's what happens when his life is evaluated in the way that he's built his life. Uh, Paul will say in first Corinthians three fifteen that that man's work is burned up, meaning all that this man, all that he lived for, all that he wanted to live for, none of it lasted for eternity. Everything that he invested in, everything that he pursued, everything that he chased after, none of it mattered for eternity. And as a result, his whole life was a waste. It was evaluated and the evaluation of God burned it all up because nothing lasted. But notice what happens to him though. He suffers loss, but he himself is saved yet. So is through fire. It's possible that you and I as a believer could live our lives and have no lasting eternal value to them. That you and I could chase things the entirety of our lives and it not matter one iota for heaven question is, what are you investing your lives in? Are you investing it in something that will last for eternity because a day is coming when Jesus Christ will evaluate it? Let me give you guys another example. First Timothy chapter one, verses 18 and 19. Fight the good fight, Paul says to Timothy, keeping your faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Men and women who had faith and yet in the course of that ship being uh, sailed, it suffered shipwreck. It fell short. It failed. Question is, was that faith genuine? Was it real? Will it save them from hell? The question of burning, is that burning hell or is that burning something different in 1 Corinthians 3.15? I think it's clearly that you can see that it's something different. Second Timothy 2 gives another example of someone who will uh, deny Jesus Christ and does his denial of Christ cost him heaven? I don't think so. It costs him rewards and it costs him an opportunity to reign with Jesus Christ. So the question is, as we continue to walk through here, if these people were genuine believers and they rejected Jesus Christ publicly and said, hey, I'm going back to Judaism. The heat is too hot. The cost is too high. I want out of here. I'm done. They head back to Judaism. They reject Jesus Christ. They reject their profession of faith. What's going to happen to them? The writer of Hebrews is going to go on. I think it's going to show us the peril and the results of it. He says it in verse six. He says, it is impossible to renew that person again to repentance. All right. 
What in the world does it mean that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance? It's a person who has genuine faith, a person who has enlightened, who has tasted of the good word of God, who's seen the powers of the age to come, who's been a partaker of the Holy Spirit, but he's fallen away. And the result of that for that audience and for that person is that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. I think you get a description even more of what that means in verse three. I notice he says, chapter five, verse 11, I kind of skipped over chapter six, verse three, but he says, you guys have an immaturity problem. You guys are not growing in your faith. He goes, because of that, what I want to do for us is I want to challenge us to grow in our faith. And what we're going to do is we're going to leave the basics of Christianity aside and we're going to press on to maturity. But notice what he says in verse three, he says, and this we will do, we will press on to maturity if God permits. We will press on to maturity if God permits. Why might he not permit? (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? Do you take your spiritual life for granted? Do you think that you will always continue to mature in your life? Do you think spiritual maturity is something that just happens inevitably to you? (laughs) It's something that's inevitable. It's something that's guaranteed. Or do you realize that it is not guaranteed? The writer of Hebrews, I think in chapter six, verse three, is going to say that spiritual maturity, even for a genuine believer, is not guaranteed. Because there may be a point in time in which you and I may press into sin and into lack of faith, at which point we may cross a line in which we cannot turn back. I think the point of Hebrews 6, as we walk through this, the writer of Hebrews is warning his audience who has a real faith that's been stunted, that if they continue to press on, if they continue to go in this direction and they reject Jesus Christ, they may not have an opportunity to turn around. Scott told me to be careful and I immediately got in my car and I turned around, all right? And yet this is so much more severe. The writer of Hebrews says that if you and I, or at least for this audience, if they don't turn around, if they don't continue to cling to Jesus, then they may not have an opportunity to repent of that decision and they may not have an opportunity to turn and change their mind and to change their course. They may not be able to mature. The reality is, I think as you look at Hebrews 6, that for a genuine believer, I don't think our maturity is something that's always inevitable and guaranteed. I think our maturity is something that's expected because you and I have been given all the resources we need for it, but it isn't forced on us, all right? In many regards, as we kind of walk through, for those of y'all who have Calvinistic backgrounds and who know Tulip, um, we don't believe here at Grace in perseverance of the saints. We believe in preservation of the saints. Meaning, if you and I have trusted in Jesus Christ and we've made that decision, then no matter what happens, we will be preserved into his presence and we will be glorified one day. But we may not necessarily always mature and continue on in the process of sanctification. It is for sure that we will be justified. It is for sure that we will be glorified one day and the whole process will be finished in our life when we're remade back into the image of God and completely glorified into his image. But we may not press on. We may not continue on in maturity. It is possible for a genuine believer to not continue on in good deeds and maybe not even continue on in their faith. And so I'm going to argue to you guys as we kind of walk through this, if that's the result, then what do we do about it? That if it's not about people who are posing that spiritual immaturity is not because people have a faith that's not genuine, that a genuine faith may not mature, then what in the world do you and I do about it? Um, I think as we kind of walk through, I'm going to give you guys a few examples that really I think of the significance of this. If maturity is not possible, then what happens to our lives? I'd argue from 1 Corinthians 3.15 that you and I are still justified, forgiven, and have eternal life. But what happens to our lives if we don't continue on to mature? Here's what was at stake. Here was the peril for this audience and for you and I. First of all, is that the significance of their life could be wasted. 
that if they rejected Jesus Christ, it's not that Jesus would reject them and not give them uh, eternal life and the forgiveness of the sins, but that their whole life, the significance of it, would be just a vapor, evaporated, burned up in a moment and would have no lasting significance for all of eternity. 1 Corinthians 3 is a great passage. John 15, and even argue James 2. All right, another critical debated passage. I think the point in James 2 is that faith without works, it's not that that faith doesn't save you from hell, but that faith doesn't save you from a life that's worthless and useless. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, I think, is going to give us yet another imagery for what he means here in this warning. Look with me at verses 7 and 8, and I think he's going to make the point that I think James makes in James 2, not that a faith without works doesn't save you from hell, but that a faith without works doesn't save you from uselessness and a life that's wasted. Notice verse seven, he says this. Let me give you guys another, in a sense, analogy or imagery of what he's trying to get across to his audience. He says, for ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. What's the, what's the point of the analogy? Hey, if your spiritual life is like the ground and God comes and rains the, his truth upon it, his spirit upon it, if it yields fruit and it's fruitful and it's useful, then guess what? God blesses it, all right? Now, what happens if it doesn't yield fruit? What happens if our faith is stunted and our life doesn't bear fruit? What happens? It says if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. I don't think the burning here is hell. Just because you see fire, it does not always mean it's hell. Just because you see the word save, it does not always mean save from hell, all right? Uh, as you walk through the scriptures, there's great complexity and use of some of these words. And I think the burning here, it has nothing to do with heaven and hell has everything to do with what's going to happen to your current life and its worth and its value and its significance. If you and I reject Jesus Christ, our life, our pursuits, the things we chase are just an absolute waste. Apart from Jesus Christ, nothing is going to last for all of eternity after you and I die are in the grave. What's going to happen? All those things are going to be a waste. And so I think the first thing that happens if we don't mature in our faith is that the significance of our life is wasted. The second thing is that I think the quality of our life is destroyed. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but, but Christ comes to give life and give it abundantly. Walking with Jesus Christ, clinging to him even when life is hard, obeying him even when it doesn't seem like it's fun. Actually, that is all that life was meant to be. <laughs> But what sin does is it confuses us and it distorts for us really what uh, life is all about. And what you and I end up doing is we end up pursuing something that's not just lacking of significance that's going to last, but we also pursue something that's of a quality that's lesser than what God has for us. We can waste our life and we can destroy our life by chasing sin and chasing and rejecting Jesus Christ. The third thing that's even more stunning is that you and I can also have our duration of our life cut short. That if you and I pursue sin long enough, it can actually cut our life short. If you look through the Old Testament, Proverbs 10 shows that righteousness prolongs life. Uh, wickedness cuts life short. I'd also argue from James 5 and Acts 5 that you see examples of genuine believers who in sin and in disobedience, their very lives are cut short. They're killed. And, and we're going to see that idea even as we get a little bit later on in the book in Hebrews chapter 10 and in an even harder warning passage than this one, all right? So, so what's the point? Let me, let me try to wrap up. Uh, this is a really, really hard passage, all right? I think the writer of Hebrews is speaking to an audience that has a real faith that's been stunted. And the prescription for their immaturity is to press on to maturity because the consequences of continuing on in sin, continuing on in rejection of Jesus and recounting and recanting him and going back to Judaism leads to a life that's wasted, a life that's destroyed, and a life that could be cut short. So what do you and I do about this? <laughs> What's the point? For us personally, let me say a few things. One, uh, are you maturing today? 
As we look at Hebrews chapter 6, it doesn't seem like the writer shows us where the line is, all right? Where the line is in which you and I can't turn around, okay? None of us here are living perfectly. A lot of us are chasing things that don't matter and chasing things that sometimes may frankly be sin. But the question is, for those of us that are going seriously into some of that and we completely have turned and rejected Jesus Christ, the warning of Hebrews 6 is if you continue long enough, you may continue on in a path in which point you may not have a chance to turn around. You may not always have a tomorrow. You may not always have a chance to find the mercy and the kindness of God, not that that will always forgive you, but that will turn you. At some point, God may let you walk down that path and he may say, fine, you can have what you want. And and, and in a sense, we don't get another chance to turn around, all right? Moses and that generation, they didn't get a chance to turn around and to get to see what God had for them. A line got drawn and they didn't get to turn around. And, And I think that the point for this audience, the point for you and I, for some of us, if we're not maturing, if we're pursuing a life that's completely contrary to him, we may not get a chance to turn around. Second question I want to ask is, do you see the consequences for persistent faithfulness? Do you realize that that kind of life is cutting the significance of your life short, possibly the duration of your life, and even the quality of your life? There are consequences for that path and for that trajectory. Even more, I want to challenge us on a whole different note. Uh, What do we do for those in our lives that we see uh, that kind of trajectory of someone's life? What do we do? Maybe it's not you. Maybe you really are pursuing Jesus Christ. Let me say, hey, if you are trying to pursue Jesus Christ, but you're struggling with all different kinds of things, welcome to the club, all right? Uh, You watch my life long enough, you're going to see some hypocrisy and you're going to see a lack of it being integrated, the truth of God being integrated in my life. All right, but if you're here this morning and you've been going down a path and yet you realize in your heart that the Spirit of God is coming after you and he's convicting you, I want to challenge you that you have today. You have today an opportunity to repent, to change your mind about your action and to come and to change your course as well. The question is though, and and the the promise of the warning is you may not always have tomorrow. You don't know how long you continue to persist in that route, in which point you may not have a chance to turn around. For some of us, uh, you know, we, we realize we're not perfect, but we look around and we look at some people in our own lives that we realize, man, they are so far from the Lord. <laughs> Maybe they at one point had trusted in Jesus Christ. They had a faith that was growing, but we've seen it stunted. We've seen it go backwards. And now we even see a life that uh, it looks just like the world. <laughs> and it's filled with immorality and it's filled with wickedness. What do we do with that kind of person? I'd argue that's what a lot of churches are asking. What do we do with people that have been in the church or they've heard the truth of God for so long, but they're not responding and they're not bearing fruit? What do we do with those people? First thing I'd say is that we pin assurance to their belief. If you want to know and you want to nail down the reality or, or the best evidence you have for what someone and someone's relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't nail it down on their lifestyle. You nail it down on their belief. The cross of Jesus Christ and someone's response to it is the most firm and is the primary evidence and the primary assurance we have for someone's faith that we still cannot guarantee or, or speculate or know exactly, all right? But lifestyle and fruit bearing is far more secondary and far less certain than we have in just what someone believes and responds and, and communicates what their belief and their, and their understanding of the gospel is. One's assurance for their salvation is landed primarily on their faith, what they believe, not how they live. Second thing is that we identify and we remedy natural causes for immaturity, all right? Uh, here's kind of when I want to camp out a little bit, and we're going to wrap up here. I know we're going long, and that's this. And there's all kinds of reasons why someone with genuine faith may not bear fruit. There's all kinds of reasons why someone with a genuine faith that may even have a desire to grow may not be maturing in their faith. And the reason for that is not because they're posing, <laughs> 
There's all kinds of reasons why that might be the case. First of all, let's take, for example, in our own lives, we may have all the greatest intentions in the world, but if we're living with the wrong people and we're hanging with the wrong crowd, good luck trying to grow in your faith. (laughs) You may have a heart that's really responsive to the Lord, but if you're hanging in a crowd that's doing all kinds of stuff that's contrary to the things of God and they hate God, and even though you may have a heart to reach out to them, if that's primarily where you're living, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, bad company corrupts good morals. (laughs) You can have a genuine faith, and if you're in the wrong circle, that faith may have a really hard time growing. You may be, have a genuine faith, but if you're not in the, in the word of God, if you're not in the truth of God, if you're not around the people of God, it's going to be really hard to continue to progress and mature. I'd also argue, look through the scriptures, uh, some people may have no idea that they have all kinds of resources to walk with God. They may be trying to fight, fight sin, but they don't realize that the spirit of God has come in to dwell within them. So they have no idea how to use the resources God has given them to fight and to have victory over sin. And so they're not bearing fruit because no one's ever taught them, hey, that you have the spirit of God, that all you need for life and godliness has been deposited to you. And so all you need to do is lean on those resources, use those resources, and you'll have an opportunity to find victory. It's like someone, uh, when I first got married, throwing me a power drill and a hacksaw and a circular saw. I had no knowledge how to use those things, and I couldn't have done anything but cut my fingers, all right? Uh, but it didn't mean that I didn't have the real thing. I, I had the resources. I just didn't know how to use it. That's why I wasn't building massive, huge, awesome projects. And so my point being, why might someone not be maturing in their faith? And maybe that they're in the wrong crowd. Maybe they have all the resources of God, but no one's ever come and discipled and taught them how to use them. There's all kinds of reasons why someone with a genuine faith may not progress into maturity. And so what I want to challenge us, for some of us, especially if a lot of us have some reformed or Calvinistic backgrounds, one of the things that I see in a lot of preachers and a lot of books today is there's a real quickness to come really quickly and doubt someone's faith. And what I see often, so to speak, is that what is used to challenge people to maturity is, is a whip that is leveraging and, and threatening that maybe someone is not going to be saved, all right? The reality of perseverance of the saints, if you don't continue on in your faith, you may not be saved. It brings a, a place where people have no security. It's really hard to have security because you don't know whether you're going to persevere that proves whether you're saved or not. And what I want to do, and some of that's maybe flying over some people's heads, but all I want to do is, is kind of land on, there are some really significant, really real, and more primary reasons why genuine faith may not be maturing other than that someone's posing. And be really slow to go that direction with someone. Because what it can do is not actually lead them to maturity. What it can do is actually destabilize them all the more and bring all the more doubt and all the more fear and all the more move toward unrighteousness and not towards God. I think sometimes doubting someone's salvation, especially if they've said that they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, can do far more harm than it can do help. Especially when there's some real genuine reasons that ought to be explored first for why someone might not be maturing in their faith. And so I kind of want to wrap up there and just say a lot of us, for a lot of us, you know, what do we do with this passage? (laughs) It's really hard to swallow. I think for a lot of us, we look at our lives and say, hey, am I maturing? Am I doing everything I can to continue to press on to maturity and continue on in trajectory to know Jesus Christ more and to be more like him? Maturity doesn't happen by coincidence. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It takes a lot of hard work. Diligence, a pursuit of God to know God at time in his word, time with the people of God, it comes at great cost. And for those that have not willingly paid that cost, for those that are regressing in their faith, there's all kinds of reasons why that might be the case. And if we quickly run to doubting their salvation, what it can do is destabilize them and bring a fear in that can actually be far more hurtful than it can be helpful. 
So I think Hebrews 6 is written to an audience that are genuine believers that have regressed in their faith, that are under great persecution, under great pressure, and they're wrestling with whether they're going to stay under that pressure or whether they're going to bail. And their bailing from that pressure does not say that they were not saved. What it says is they weren't willing to pay the cost, and the result of that is they're going to miss out on the rewards that God has for them if they only would have paid the cost in this lifetime. There were rewards to come for a future lifetime, rewards that we've been talking about all semester so far. So let me go and pray for us. And if you guys have questions, I know this is a really difficult passage and where I'm going with it is a really difficult thing to swallow as well. I would love to talk with you. This one Sunday morning is not enough time to really appropriately handle this passage. And so I'd love to chew on it. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to answer whatever questions you guys have. So feel free to come forward if you want. But let me pray for us. Father God, I give you great thanks that at the foot of the cross, we have great security, we have great freedom, and that we know that your son paid a price for us once and for all, and that our assurance in our relationship with you does not have anything to do primarily with our lifestyle, but has everything to do with what you've done on our behalf, and that you did what we could not do, you went where we could not go, you died the death we could not die. And, and Father, I pray that as we continue to struggle, as we continue to know you and pursue you more, Lord, I pray that you would give us diligence, that you would allow us to pay the cost uh, that you would allow us to, to fight and, and to struggle and, and to be willing to be shamed on your account. Um, Lord, we live in a culture, we live in a place that the price is not that high. And yet even on a normative basis, even as we look at our world, and we look at the things that our world offers, we, we pay a cost into not pursuing those things, but pursuing you, Lord. And I pray that you would give us the courage to pay that cost. You give us the courage to pursue you no matter the cost. You give us the courage to know you no matter what it takes. And Father, I pray for some of us who are in deep, dark holes, Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh reminder, even as we saw last week, that your son has paid the penalty for all our sins. There's nowhere we could be. There's nothing we could be uh, running into that you have not paid and you would not pay. And yet for some of us, Lord, that continue down a path and towards that trajectory, Lord, I pray that you would alarm us this morning, that you would awake us, that you would cause us to realize that we may not always have an opportunity to turn back and to change our path and to change our trajectory and to redeem our life, not from hell, but to redeem it from insignificance and to redeem it from destruction. Father, I ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. You guys, thanks for coming this morning, and we'll see you guys next week.